Judaism is very near to us in our hearts. We're transforming our, transforming our um, experiences from mundane desires to sincere love of Hashem is not a small thing. And only tzaddikim govern their hearts. Only tzaddikim really have true control of their hearts, as we explained in the last class. So, the if you have page numbers, did you have page numbers in the copies or no? Okay, fine. But at the end of the yeah, yeah, the Hebrew page is forty-four. We are on the bottom right column, the last paragraph. But, but the words you can fulfill refer to love, which merely leads to the performance of the commandments. This being the hidden desire of the heart, even when it does not glow openly, like flaming coals. In other words, when the Torah says that um, it is accessible to us to have Judaism in our heart, to actually feel, it's not referring to a, this transformation of, of what we call sincere love of God. Rather, he's talking about um, what we said previously, which is how this chapter began, that it was based on what we said previously, that through contemplation, a person can develop a sense of personal attachment and conviction. Um, how important it is to them to be connected to Hashem that provides motivation um, and enthusiasm for the mitzvahs, even though they have not actually transformed their experience of life so that the only thing, their only point of reference is the closeness to God. Okay? So, what we have to hear is what we have to do is we go back what we learned in the previous chapter that there's kind of these two levels of emotion. There's emotion in as much as it connects me to what I'm doing, and there's emotion which really transforms my entire experience of life. Which kind of emotion is the Torah claiming that it is close to us, accessible to us, that we all can reach? It's that first type, the type that connects us to our actions. Okay. Um, two points I want to make clear. Number one is that he's basing this on the end of the verse. It says it's in your heart so that you can fulfill it. I mean, the, the, the level of the heart is the level of the heart that relates to our behavior. The other thing is, this is not talking about the behavior itself. Okay? In other words, the question here is not, do you have the free will? This is going to be important for, as we go for the chapter. The question is not, do you have the free will to comply with the dictates of the Torah? Right? The whole question is here, how much is it within on my ability to feel... Um, close to Hashem within the context of Judaism and the answer to that is it depends if we're talking about the kind of feeling that um, our sense of Hashem is our sole orientation for how we value, how we love, how we experience then that's not really within our, our ability, that's something that only tzaddikim have but if we talk about cultivating that sense in as much as it provides a sense of meaning and attachment to the mitzvahs, then that's within, within our abilities and the reason for this, he goes on to say, this thing is very near, and it's easy for any person who has brains in his head, for his brain is under his control, and he is able to concentrate on anything he wishes. And thus, if he will then contemplate with, on the greatness of the Ain of Blessed, contemplate the greatness of Hashem, he will inevitably generate his mind, at least the love of God, to cleave to him through the performance of his commandments and the Torah, which is what we discussed in the previous chapter. Now, um, I, I want to point something out. Uh, this expression, someone who has brains in their head, it's funny, right? <laughs> so in the Hebrew, I'm just, I, I, yeah, so they did captioning it. It is easy for any person who has brains in his head. Now, grammatically, that seems to imply that there's a category of something called 
persons, and there's a subcategory of those persons who have no brain. brains in their head, implying that there's a, there is a category of people who don't have brains in their head. <laughs> right? So, what I'm going to tell you, I don't know if this is the this is, this is not necessarily, this, most, this is not the straightforward, simple meaning of the Tanya. It's a more abstract, Kabbalistic symbolism. But it turns out to really actually connect back to the straightforward meaning of the Tanya. Um, we previously discussed how the forehead, the, the skull represents will in the previous class. I mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not going to go back into the represent. Okay. Um, so... If you have brains in your skull, it means your intellect is under your volitional control. In other words, the, people have a rational mind, right? The ability to contemplate, pay attention, right? Does that mean every single human being really has volitional mastery over their rational mind that they can use it as they wish? But to put this in very simple terms, can you use your mind the same way you use your pen? Or for that matter, take a limb, your foot, right? You can walk around however you wish, right? Can you use your mind the same way? Now, is that because you are incapable or because that's something that requires training, it requires maturity, or, right? right? In other words, it is a normal human feature, right? We said previously in the previous class, we don't have volitional control over our emotions, right? So it's like this. Our emotions... We do not have volitional control. You can't just decide that I'm going to feel differently than what I do. Right? It doesn't work like that. Unless you're inside it. Um, our limbs and our behavior, we have volitional control over that, right? What about our reasoning mind? Let's say like, you know, the general thing about human beings is yes, but if you get down to it, that's not always the case. For instance, sometimes a person is a bit scatterbrained. A person is um, having a difficulty focusing, Right? Um, sometimes a person hasn't learned, right? It's like, I might in theory have volitional control over my hands. It doesn't mean I can play piano because I haven't trained my hands to do that properly. So I need to use my volitional control over my hands to train myself to play. And then I can actually choose to play a, a piece of music. So this idea that you can just contemplate the greatness of Hashem, right? Because you can concentrate and contemplate anything you wish, kind of assumes that what's the relationship between your will and your reasoning mind? is that your will has mastery over your reasoning mind. If that's not true, is anything that we've learned really going to be applicable? Are you going to be able to do that? No. Okay. So, does that kind of imply that what he's saying here is not universally applicable? Yes. Yes. Okay. Is that clear to everybody? Okay. We touched on this previously when I said that there were, um, um, that there's, there's, problems that can occur that prevent this method of contemplation taking place. And that's why the altar of a chapter 18 gives a new approach. Okay. So this touches on that idea. So yes, it's a, it's, it's a kind of a, it's, a, it's kind of a clever thing. Anybody who has a brain in their skull, right? But in, in a deeper sense, it's mean, assuming that you have that kind of willful volitional control of your reasoning mind, right? Then of course you can do this. But if for whatever reason you're in that, um, category of people, which we're going to say is a minority of healthy adults, well then, okay, it may not be applicable to you, right? And that's something to be addressed in the beginning of chapter 18. Okay. And this, okay, now there, there's an obvious objection to this, which is, and I want to put, frame this in the, from, the, from the kind of Hasidic lens. Um, the Hasidic lens 
takes for granted that simply complying with the rules of Judaism is not enough. How do I know that that's the Hasidic view? Because would there be any need for Hasidic teachings or is the fact that we have a revelation, we have the Tanakh, we have an oral tradition that tells what we have to do, and so you have the authority of God, you have commandments, like what else do you need? The fact that there is, in fact, any kind of Hasidus is an indication that simply complying with the dictates of the Torah is not sufficient. That's not what, that's not what it, you can't say that's what it's all about ultimately. Right? By the way, f- from that logic, also any kind of school of Jewish thought, whether you're talking about Musr or any kind of Kabbalah or anything like that, seems to be taken for granted. There's more to Judaism right, than just doing what you're supposed to do. That makes sense out everybody? Okay. Now, Hasidus particularly um, has a strong appeal that it's supposed to relate to the actual experience of the person. In other words, that, that um, there's supposed to be a kind of closeness to Hashem that the person actually achieves that is not just in some sort of mystical sense, but like it actually is meaningful and significant in their lived experience. Right? And it seems to be that that would imply, if you, if you go with that train of thought, that the ultimate closeness to Hashem would be if you could like transform your, your emotional experience to be, to, as he says previously, love Hashem with truth, right? That you have no mundane desires anymore. Right? So it seems to be that the Torah is telling us that you can have this kind of closeness with Hashem, but the real ultimate truth of Judaism, of real genuine closeness, is not accessible to everybody. And that is problematic. Um, It's problematic for many, many reasons. The primary reason why that's problematic is because how much enthusiasm can you really have if you feel like what you are doing has an upper limit that prevents you from actually achieving what you really value? In other words, if something is really important to you and you say, okay, well, you can have a little bit of that, but you you can't go any further, right? And there are people, like, it, it makes you feel, um, it makes you feel kind of a, 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 a kind of a disillusionment, a, a frustration, which is counterproductive to one's relationship with God. And this is a theme that the Alta Deba is going to address um, later on in Tanya in chapter 35, as he says. So he says like this. This constitutes the whole purpose of man, for it's written this day to do them, this day refers to specifically the physical world of action, while tomorrow, in the afterlife, the time of reward is explained elsewhere. Meaning that doing mitzvahs is actually the greatest closeness with Hashem, not the emotional experience. And when you realize that, the fact that you can do mitzvahs um, doesn't mean that you're, you're not achieving the ultimate connection. Be, um, just be, sorry, the fact that you're doing mitzvahs without necessarily the full emotional experience of a tzaddik doesn't mean you're not achieving the ultimate connection. I'm going to just briefly outline, because I think it's important here to, because he makes reference to it. Um, the chapters 35 through 37 of Tanya deal with this idea that the ultimate connection to Hashem is found through the performance of mitzvahs, and specifically physical mitzvahs. Okay? Chapters 38 
8 through 40 deal with the idea, though, that the mitzvahs, the simple performance of mitzvahs is not sufficient, and those mitzvahs need to be enlivened, as we discussed in the previous chapter, with our emotional experience. And since the previous chapter we learned that the mitzvahs being enlivened doesn't depend on the intensity of the experience, but on how sincere it is, right? The fact that a person through contemplation can generate that sincere experience means nothing's lacking in the genuine connection with Hashem. Okay? So there's this... In, in, a, in a certain sense, you can think about it that, that, that um, there's more here that needs to be developed. Right? But what he wants to make clear is that this is not telling you you should settle for something secondary, but rather this idea that even though you cannot achieve necessarily the kinds of emotional experiences of a tzaddik, or even the emotional experiences that some bainanim can achieve, but the fact you can develop that kind of sincere attachment and personal connection and conviction, that is just as effective in fulfilling the ultimate purpose of our existence and being as close to God as the tzaddik. Um, Obviously, that creates a lot of questions and complications. So the first half of that is that the, the mitzvahs, and specifically the physical ones, is the greatest connection to Hashem is chapters 35 through 37. And then going back and saying that does not alleviate the need to have the emotional connection. That's 38 through 40. And then that ties back to what we learned. That if you contemplate, you get that quality of the emotion. You get the mitzvahs serve, as, the, 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 the love and fear serve as wings. Okay. The mind, in turn, so we said, okay, so if you have, if you have you know, the ability to control your mind and contemplate in a, in a sincere way about something, then the mind gets to a certain perspective, a certain perception of things. And the mind, in turn, by virtue of its inherent nature, is master of the left part of the heart and over the mouth and all the limbs that are instruments of action. Okay. The nature of a person is that our mind rules our heart. Now, there's an obvious contradiction here. What did we just previously say? That in... This was on last week. That the tzaddikim, the righteous, they rule their heart. And now what is he saying? That the nature of every person is to rule the heart. Yeah. So what is the difference? So if you recall, we spoke about last week how you can't just decide to like someone. You can't just decide to have empathy. You can't just decide these things, right? And we spoke about how our emotions are reactionary, right? But what do they react to? What do our emotions react to? What triggers feelings of satisfaction or compassion or hatred or love or fear or guilt? What, what, is, it, what is it that actually makes those emotions um, come alive? It's perception of reality. Right. And we just said we control our perception. So we indirectly have control over the emotions, right? Okay. So therefore, since a person, again, not all people all the time, but most people most of the time, have the ability to control their mind to contemplate on whatever they wish, and the nature of human emotion is that they react to the mind. So as long as things are clear in the mind, that perception is, is genuine, right? then there will be some degree of emotional response. Okay? So that's called, in this language of Chassiz, that's called Mayach Shalit Al-Halev. The mind governs the heart. As opposed to what we said about the Tzaddikim, where we said, Libam Bireshusam, that their heart is in their control. Okay, so these are two different ideas. Okay. I know I went relatively quickly there, but that was really kind of tying together a bunch of stuff that we learned up until now. So, And we do really have to finish today. So, 
I'm going to stop at this point. If there's anything um, that isn't clear, please ask now, because now we're going to learn new stuff, new ideas that we have not encountered before. I know it's in the middle of a sentence, but... It's all clear? Mm-hmm. Okay. Except in him who is completely wicked. As the sages said, the wicked are under the control of their heart, but their heart is not at all controlled by them. There is a select group of people who, they are the opposite of a tzaddik. They are what he called the completely wicked. Now, I object to the translator here um, because they translate it as completely wicked. But the actual Hebrew says, Russia be'emes. What does Russia be'emes mean? Does anyone know any Hebrew? A truly wicked person, right? No, that should be contrasted with one who, 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 who previously he says, like, one who truly loves Hashem. Okay. There is a question as to what the Al-Tabba means when he says a truly wicked person. Okay. Um, the Rebbe in a letter actually presents both options. It seems that the Rebbe is unsure of the matter. So I'm going to explain both options and, and the arguments for and against in both ways. Okay. But before we do that, what I want to talk about is the actual state of affairs. Okay. So you have a person who is truly wicked, whatever truly wicked means, and the result of that is that their heart... They're in control of their, their, their heart controls them. They are not in control of their heart. What? Sorry, I just don't have, for whatever reason, it's not in my packet. Oh, that's annoying. We have 16. What? This chapter 16 is here. This is chapter 16. Whatever, I don't have this page. Okay. Okay, so we have three categories of people. Let's start with this. There's the people who the mind governs the heart. We're going to call those people normal. That's when God created human beings, he created a type of creature which the mind governs the heart, right? He created snakes, right? They have their nature. He created dolphins. They have their nature. He created human beings. And what's the nature of human beings? The mind rules the heart, which means if the mind comes to a clear perception of something, that will elicit the appropriate emotions. Therefore, in a person, assuming nothing is broken... If they're feeling a certain way, then I know that that's reflecting how they perceive things. Good? And moreover, people, as a general rule, have control over their mind. Again, that's, not, so that's something that needs to be maintained and exercised, and it's not always and all the time, but most people most of the time. Okay. Then we have these people who are more, and, and don't take this the wrong way because it should not be taken the wrong way, but they're more God-like than human-like in what sense? That they are... Again, what sense? It, how does God have compassion or empathy or vengeance? He just wills himself to have it. Yeah, whatever that would mean. So there are people who, right, they stand above their emotions and their emotions are in their control. They just decide this is the right feeling to feel and they bring that feeling about. Okay. And that, we said, it, 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 that's transcending the human. But then you have this other category, which is the reverse, where the, the, their, their, the, their heart is in control of them. They're not in control of their heart. Now, there is an obvious problem with this category because the mind ruling the heart, we just said, is a natural human thing, Right? So the tzaddik has transcended their humanity, but how exactly does it happen that a person, right, that the mind no longer rules, rules the heart, but the heart is kind of controlling the whole person? How does that happen? Okay. 
So I'm going to give you the traditional understanding. Okay? And the traditional understanding is that this has nothing to do with psychology. Okay? There will be rabbis, I'll just for the purpose of honesty, who will teach you Tanya, or they'll teach you this idea, and they will try and draw psychological analogies to this. Okay? And I'm not saying that no analogies can exist, and they may even actually describe it as a psychological phenomenon, but it's not. Um, that's not the traditional understanding. I've asked um, older chassidim, and I've also um, looked at different letters that the Rebbe wrote on this topic. And the way you can see this is that the first thing he says about this is, this is a punishment. Okay? And the traditional understanding is that his saying it's a punishment is to explain how something unnatural could occur. Right? So, let me explain how this works. You have some people that their minds do not govern their emotions at all. Okay? There are people like that. Okay. Those people fit into two general categories. One are children, and the other, what would the other category be? You have, like, mentally Ill people. Right, people that are suffering certain kinds of mental illnesses. Okay. These people, right, the mind doesn't govern, the, 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 the mind's inability to govern the heart is connected to some kind of malfunction in something in the psyche or a lack of development of something in the psyche in the case of a child, and actually results in something very interesting, which is that as far as Judy is concerned, such people are, broadly speaking, exempt from mitzvahs. Does that make sense? In other words, if a child does not fulfill a mitzvah, is the child sinning? No. If a person suffering with certain kind of mental um, um, issues doesn't perform a mitzvah, are they sinning? No. That doesn't mean that's not good for them to do the mitzvahs. It just means, right, that, that they're not sinning, right? Because there's a notion that there's a level of kind of human function. You want to think of this on a, on a biological, like a strictly biological level. Um, some people can't hear, some people can't see, right? So if a mitzvah requires seeing or hearing, they're exempt from the mitzvah, right? But we also understand that that's, that's some kind of a... Um, malfunction of the human of the, of, of the human organism, right? It's not supposed to work that way. That makes sense. So, a human being is supposed to be able to see, they're supposed to be able to hear, and they're supposed to be able to self-govern using their mind, right? Not just their behavior, but even their emotions. What do you mean malfunction? Because it, like Hashem made them blind. That's that's a, that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a theological question. Why Hashem makes broken things? Okay. But it's important to notice, the question only arises once you know why that, the, that, that it's broken. In other words, I do not know of a single, I'm not saying there isn't, I do not know of a single Jewish thinker that takes the view that a blind person um, is not deficient compared to a seeing person. The question then is, why would God do that? And there's a variety of different answers that are given in Jewish thought. Um, and... You know, definitely thinkers that are that are for focus on the individual significance of a person, right? Chassidus would fit into this category. Try to show that there is some unique thing that is brought out by dealing with that kind of deficiency and that kind of a struggle. And fine, okay. But nonetheless, it all the whole question only makes sense if you recognize like there is the way a human being is supposed to be, right? So human being is supposed to be able to walk. They're supposed to be able to see, right? Um, they're supposed to be able to hear, right? And a human being is supposed to be able to regulate not just their behavior, but their emotions. Okay? So, if a person just cannot do that, 
Okay? That's not a punishment. That's something being broken, right? Now let's contrast this. There are blind people. We don't... I mean, I, there are Jewish thinkers that think every deficiency is a form of punishment, but that's generally not the way we think about it. We generally don't think that way, that you know, it is because you have sinned, therefore, you are, therefore this specific negative thing occurred. It's not so black and white like that. Um, not that there isn't reward and punishment. Okay. So a blind person, does that mean the blind person is being punished? Right, with blindness? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, now, in Egypt... There was a plague of darkness, right? And the Egyptians couldn't see. Now, that was a punishment. Make sense? But there's a difference, right? In other words, God does something that is unnatural as a response, as a, as, as, as a, um, a, a feedback to the sinful behavior of the person or a group of people, right? That's different than the notion of just like natural consequence, okay? Now there is some discussion in Judaism of whether all punishment should be viewed as natural consequence or Hasidus doesn't take the view that everything is understood as a form of natural consequence. There is an idea that God responds to us in a way that is analogous to one person responding to another person, right? If I treat you poorly, I should expect not just as a natural consequence, like if I, if I run into the street, I might get up by a car, but like you might actually decide to treat me differently because I've been treating you poorly, right? As feedback. And you're your volitional control that you can decide to do that or decide not to do that. Okay. So a person that is being punished in this way, does their mind still govern their heart and regulate the rest of them? And the answer is yeah. It's just when it comes to God, it's not gonna work. So this is a person who can still function and you know have a family and hold down a job and you know when they see something is a problem they can stop doing it and you know if they need to need to work on um, you know kind of emotional issues that are causing destructive things in their life they, they can do all of that right they're they're basically by any any evaluation from a mental health professional they would be considered to be well in the range of normal functioning and yet. No matter how much they contemplate the greatness of God, what happens? It stays cold and aloof and distant. It never resonates in the way that actually elicits even those kind of, um, you know, the emotions in the mind and the heart that we spoke about in chapter 16. I'm, I'm still not here for that. I said a lot of things. How so far like, back do you want me to go? I don't understand how the emotions... The emotions are under their mind? Yeah, there's a normal, healthy, functioning person. It's just when it comes to this specific issue, when they contemplate the greatness of God, it doesn't affect them. It's not in general they don't have that ability. If a person in general doesn't have that ability, it's either because they haven't developed because they're a child, or they're mentally ill. Now, it could, right? Because that's the nature of a human being, right? If, If I see a person, let me use it, gives you a different, more sophisticated thing. If I find a human being who's unable to speak, I know one of two things. Either they're, they're an infant or toddler, or what's the other possibility? Mentally ill. Some kind of de- defect. It could be a physical defect, right? They're not able to, right? It could be a cognitive defect, but there's something wrong, right? Because if they've reached past a certain place of development, right? They should have developed at least verbal language abilities. That's natural. Written language abilities are not like that. 
You have to actually be taught those things. But it's a natural part of being a human being. Okay? Regulating is a natural part of being a human being. It doesn't mean things can't get broken. It doesn't mean things can't get messed up. Right? Um, you know. But here we're talking about something else. The, the, because it's a natural thing, it should be working. Right? And the fact that a person does sins doesn't stop it from working. What happens is that Hashem punishes the person. We'll talk a little bit soon about what that, why and how to understand that punishment. And what that punishment is, is that when it comes to this, this notion that <clears throat> perception elicits emotions, and that how we make sense of our reality is what gives rise to how we feel about things, that will not work when it comes to Hashem. So no matter how deeply that person contemplates, it's not going to move them, it's not going to affect them. Okay. So that leads to action. What? So that leads to... No, 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 So this is very important. Does that mean they've lost their ability to make decisions in, in the observance of Torah and mitzvahs? In other words, have they lost their free will and personal responsibility? No. No. Okay. In other words, they are, cap- they are still capable of understanding that mitzvahs are important and sinning is bad and they should stop doing it and... And, and they, can, can, they can act on those beliefs. Right? That hasn't changed. We're just talking about that kind of inner emotional sense. Okay? What happens if you lose your ability to understand that something is right or wrong, or the ability to translate that into actual behavior, you go back into the exempt from mitzvahs category, right? So we're not saying everybody who is truly wicked becomes exempt from mitzvahs. We're saying a person becomes exempt, becomes truly wicked, they lose the ability to engage in this aspect of Judaism. That the basic notion of compliance with God's will, that they still have. Right? If I really hate the government and I hate everything about it and I hate the way the, the, the country works, right? I can still recognize that it's probably not a good idea to flagrantly violate the law. Right? Probably end up in jail that way, right? And so I might control my behavior because I recognize that's probably my best interest. Could a person have that kind of relationship with Judaism? That they're doing what they're supposed to be doing because they know it's the right thing to do, right? They don't want to be punished. They want to be rewarded. Whatever it is, they have all sorts of justifications and they have the, the mental maturity to act on those things and to regulate their behavior. But that inner part of your life where, where you feel connected to what you're doing, you feel driven, you feel you need the Torah, you need the mitzvahs, they can't bring that out in themselves. Why? Not because they're not contemplating, not because, they don't, doesn't, not because they're not delving deeply with their mind, but because God did something to prevent the perception that's cultivated in the contemplation from ever eliciting any emotions. And it only affects their relationship with God. It's not like a general inability to develop emotionally. And that's a punishment. Oh, this is only um, complete Russia? This is, uh, so in the, in the, in the actual thing, it says tr- someone who's truly a Russia. Yeah. Not like a rush of the Torah. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Okay. So, this is a punishment for the enormity and potency of their sin. So, if right off here, it doesn't say that this is a punishment for sin in general, but for the enormity and potency of the sin. Right? The... Um, the the, the 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 question is what exactly is the enormity and potency of sin that makes a person truly wicked? So in Tanya earlier on he describes three kinds of Rashaim. 
three kinds of wicked people. Okay? I'm not going to give them names right now. I'm just going to describe them. Wicked person number one is a person who is willing to sin, but after the sin, recognizes that it's wrong and does tshuva. Tshuva means the resolve not to sin again. And they actually change their, their behavior, their lifestyle, their patterns. In other words, it's a person who's... Um, I'm not going to use the word slips up, but they, uh, they, they give in to their evil inclination in a moment of weakness, recognize it as such, right? And, and make real serious changes not to let that happen again. Now, it may be it'll happen again later, right? But in between the tshuva and the later, they were very sincere about making sure that they don't let that happen again. Okay? That's one kind of a rasha. The second kind of a rasha is a person who sins and recognizes that it's wrong, recognizes that it's bad, and wish that they would stop, but just can't seem to care enough about it to actually make any real changes. So they have what are called hirhure tshuva, thoughts of tshuva or fantasies of tshuva, but no actual tshuva. Okay? Category number three are people who sin and don't say anything wrong with it. And what's important to understand is we're not talking about a lack of education. In other words, somebody who's not aware of a particular, someone who's not aware of a particular law, they never learned that halacha, they never learned that that's a mitzvah. Or, like I had a, I had a, a student in the men's program, and he, uh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but he, we, people don't like to know things that they're doing wrong. And we were having a discussion, and um, somehow it came up about the problem of using toothpaste on Shabbos. And he was like, you're not allowed to use toothpaste on Shabbos? And he, he grew up from like, in a traditional home or whatever, and he like considers himself Shabbos. And he was like, no, we can't. And so, like, does that mean he... So, up until that moment, he, he was, you know, he didn't regret what he was doing, but that's just he didn't know that that was the laws of Shabbos, right? Okay. Um, or similarly, someone who, like, the general relationship with God is, or the general belief in Torah is something that they've yet to come to terms with because they have lack, the lack of Jewish education, the... the Someone who's raised without a proper Jewish awareness, right? Those are not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a person who, who, um, through the repeated decision to disregard God's will, brings themselves to a point where they no longer care that they're violating God's will. Okay? So those are three categories of a wicked person. Wicked person number one is a person who is vulnerable to the evil inclination. Sometimes they allow the evil inclination to get the better of them. And when that happens, they recognize it as a problem. They resolve to make changes and they carry those changes out. They do tshuva, God forgives them. Okay, and again, it could happen again later, but it's, it's, to say, it's an isolated incident. Then there's a person who's engaged in sinful behavior and they recognize it as wrong and, they all, and then on some level they really wish they would, could stop, but they can't seem to muster enough inner fortitude and courage and feel significant enough to really make the changes necessary to stop. And the third person is a person whose sinful behavior is such that it no longer bothers them that they're in violation of God's will. Can you be any of these of like, like, can a person be like in any of these like, I guess like categories at the same time? So, so there's a general concept in Tanya, which is that Tanya speaks about the person holistically but you then can take everything we learn and realize that 
in everything there is everything. We, we've talked about this in other contexts. So in a sense, someone who is genuine, generally speaking, um, let's say the first category of rush. In other words, all the stuff they know is wrong, they don't do. All the stuff they know is right, they do. And occasionally their evil inclination, um, they, I, I want to make this more, more responsible. They allow their evil inclination to get the better of them and they make changes and, they, 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 and then they do tshuva. Okay. And I would say that's probably your average religious Jew. But then if you look at certain things, they might not have that relationship with that. There may be certain things where they do them and they feel bad about them and they wish it would stop and they just keep doing them. And there are some things they don't even see as wrong anymore. And there are some things that they would never do under any circumstance. So those areas, they're kind of like a bainani. And there's some things they don't even feel a desire to do. It's just so abhorrent to them. And those things are kind of like a tzaddik. Right? So you can have aspects of all different kinds of person within one person. If you want to think of like an analogy for this, it's like if you go to a place that has a different climate, right? even if it's a dry climate, it can still rain. And even if it's a wet climate, doesn't mean that there's never like a, 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 a dry day, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's a similar type of thing there. Okay. So now... What would it mean when the Altar says that a person is a Russia in a true sense, right? They're truly wicked. So which category of wicked person does he mean? Does he mean somebody who sins and it doesn't bother them that they're in violation of God's will? Well, I mean, that's probably obviously included, right? And it doesn't mean the other extreme, right? Someone who sins occasionally and does tshuva in a sincere way, right? And maybe they haven't solved the root of the problem, but they're sincere about making those changes in, of, in their life. That's, that's not a truly wicked person, right? What about the middle category? The person who sins, and they don't do tshuva, but they wish they did tshuva. They desire to do tshuva. They fantasize about doing tshuva. It bothers them that they're not doing tshuva. But they're still sinning. Is that included in the truly wicked person in this cat over here? And that's something that the Rebbe in his letter is in doubt about. So you could read it both ways. So you said it's for sure the third category. Right. For sure the person who's sinning and doesn't bother them that they're in violation of God's will. Again, not out of ignorance, but out of, uh, out of disregard, right? Um, and it for sure doesn't include the kind of person who occasionally they, they allow their evil inclination to get the better of them and then they make changes and they do tshuva. Um, that's not included. Okay. So... What's so bad about the so so what's so bad about the sin? Like it's not the actual sin, right? It's not like so you could have I mean I want you to to think about the following. That means you could have a person who violates Shabbos. Like they really violated Shabbos. Um willfully, consciously, and they do chufa. The Shabbos violation is a very serious sin. And conversely, you could have someone who doesn't violate Shabbos, just because of, they don't really, you know, there's no real need to violate Shabbos. They, they're not, they're not, they don't gain anything from Shabbos violation. There's a lot to lose from Shabbos violation. What's the point of Shabbos violation? Right? But any sin that they do have a desire to do, they just do and they don't feel bad about it. Even though their sins might be very small, minor sins. Now those two people come, you know, to shul or they go privately somewhere and they sit and they try to reflect upon the greatness of God. One person violated Shabbos and the other person never violated Shabbos. 
which person is going to have which person is going to have the problem having that contemplation actually move them to a feeling of connection to a feeling of being motivated to do more mitzvahs it's going to be the other person who who the sins that they do they do in, a, in, a, in without feeling any sort of regret any sort of remorse for them because what makes the sin so great is not the violation of the rule but the violation of the relationship does that make sense And then that leads to this interesting question, right? So somebody who somebody who 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 violates a relationship and doesn't bother them is clearly kind of outside the relationship. But what about a person who violates a relationship and feels bad about it? Are they outside it or are they inside it? You can say you can go both ways about that. So if they're violated, they feel bad about it, but that feeling bad doesn't really change anything. You, it's not so like it's hard. Like you could you could see that in both in two ways, right? On the one hand, they feel bad about it, so in some sense they're still like inside the relationship. But on the other hand, right, they don't feel it doesn't matter enough for them to actually make changes. So in the, and and that's a consistent feature of how they're living their life. Then, then in some sense, they're really outside the relationship, right? But a person who who transgresses and that bothers them enough that they change, right? They do truva, they they decide that I'm not going to let that happen again, and they make real change in their life to prevent that from happening again. You can't say they're outside the relationship. You can just say their their relation they're in being in the relationship is just unstable. So that first Russia, the Russia who occasionally sins and does truva, they're a Russia because they don't stay entirely within the bounds of the relationship. But but it's not because they're outside it. It's because their 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 being in the relationship is unstable. And so when it comes to this, Hashem doesn't punish such a person. It has, I mean, sinning has, don't get me wrong, there's punishment for sin, and we're not supposed to talk about it, everyone's supposed to be nice and lovey-dovey, there's punishment for sin. But this punishment that Hashem says, you cannot approach me with that level of intimacy, you cannot sense my presence in a way that is going to evoke any kind of real conviction and emotional bond, that for such a person, because the relationship is unstable, Hashem's not going to punish them that way for that. But once the person has made a consistent practice of being outside the relationship, so Shem's basic attitude is, you want to be out of the relationship? Then we're out of the relationship. It's not something you just get to turn on when, you're, when you find it convenient. And this is all like um, free will, to be any kind of way. Yeah. Now, I mean, you think about it first, right? If you get a sense that someone basically disregards you except when they're interested in you, if you have like basic self-respect, what do you do to that person? You basically cut, them, at least out of your intimate life, right? Out of, out of your kind of interpersonal life, right? I mean, you might just need to treat them decently. You're not going to be like, you know. So Hashem basically says, you know, you know, you stepped out, you stumbled. Well, okay. There's reward and punishment for, for violating the, the halach. Well, but that's, that's not the same thing as a person, and this is where the element of truth comes in. Truth has this notion of consistency. A person has made a consistent practice of living outside the relationship with Hashem can't then just decide, now I'm inspired, now I want to connect. It doesn't work like that. And now the, what, what the Rebbe's doubt is, how far out do you really have to be? You know, if you're outside the relationship and it doesn't bother you, then you're clearly outside the relationship. But if you're outside the relationship and it bothers you that you're outside the relationship, and you can see that, 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 that that's something that, that, that's not simple to simply decide one way or the other. And w- one, of the things that this, one of the things that this means is that um, you, you, you can't make you know, this kind of contemplation and 
and coming to this kind of emotional attachment to Hashem, a hobby. Any more than you can make any kind of other deep relationship with anybody else a hobby. You pick it up when you want, you drop it when you don't want, it doesn't work like that. But the Torah does not speak of these dead who in their life are called dead. So the altar says, this is not an objection because in the Torah, as a general rule, the Torah does not refer to dead people. Who are dead people? The wicked. What does that mean? So I'll explain to you. Ooh. There is a, there is a, a, I'm going to use a, an analogy for a different idea altogether, but I think it will be helpful for understanding this, okay? Um, imagine you were a surgeon. Could you, okay? Would you feel comfortable operating on a loved one if you were a surgeon? Why not? Like it's always big responsibility. It's So you could do this two ways. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it both ways. One way is what you're saying. The other way is the, the, the reverse of that. Let's start with the following observation. Surgery is um, surgery is basically doing to the human body what a mechanic does to a car. Right? You open it up, take stuff out, put stuff in. Connect things, disconnect things, right? But that's providing you don't have an emotional connection. What's that? that? That's what surgery is. Like that's what you, that's what you're doing, right? Now here's the thing: if you see, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go both ways. If you see this this person as a person, right, like in that full sense, then you can't see them as a as a body to be taken apart and put back together. Conversely, what it, and this is the, the other danger, what if you succeed in performing surgery on your loved one? Is it so easy to go back to seeing them as a person? You see, like, the, 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 there's this issue here that like you, and I'm not saying it's impossible, right? Like, like if, if your loved one was God forbid dying and you were a surgeon, there was nobody else, you thought, like you would find some way of dealing with it, right? But there's this, and you know, so, uh, uh, but there's these just like two totally different perspectives. Is what in, is what in front of me, um, you know, a piece of anatomy that can be understood and taken, dissected, right? Taken apart, put back together, right? It's obviously more complex than a car, but that's what it is. Or is this someone, right, who has life, and I and I and I sense that that life, and I feel connected to that life, right? Those are two very different ways. Of relating, make sense? Okay. Now, obviously, you don't want a surgeon to like have no sense that this is a person, right? You want them to have that value, but you want that to have that kind of a detached, whatever. Okay. When, when the Torah talks to us, 
I open up a Chumash and I read the Chumash. Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Or any other verse. Our verse here, right? That this matter is very close to you in your mind and your heart to do it. Okay? Is it talking to someone who looks at the Torah as the expression of God because they're in a relationship with Hashem? There's a, there's a bris, there's a covenant, there's a heritage, in other words, right? Or are they looking at the Torah as, you know, a, a, a series of, of a, a, as a series of sentences that are making claims about, about, you know, what I ought to do, what I not ought to do, the nature of the world, the nature of people. You could look at the Torah from outside the relationship with Hashem, or you could look at the Torah from inside the relationship with Hashem. Now, here's the interesting question. Who is the Torah talking to? The person who's standing outside the relationship and judging the Torah, or the person who's standing in that relationship with Hashem and is hearing Hashem speak to them through the Torah? Which, when the to, which, to whom does the Torah speak? Which one? One inside, right? Okay. So, if a person were to say, okay, for instance, you know, the, for instance, it, w- it, w- it would say, I'll give you a different verse in the Torah altogether, right? There's a verse in the Torah that says um, that um, that Hashem revealed Himself to to you. Okay, there's, there's several verses that have that thing, right? Atares Ladas, right? There's a sense that Hashem has revealed Himself to you. Now you could fiddle with that a little bit, and you could say, okay, that's referring not to me individually; it's referring to my ancestors. Like I don't want to go on. Like you, you could read either way. I don't really care right now. It, 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 if you're sitting around with your family I'll do with the ancestors If you're sitting around with like a family dinner right, And somebody tells a story Of what your bubby You know Told your Zaydi You know And, and what happened right? How are you hearing that story Are you standing outside like a historian And deciding is this an accurate description Of what happened in the past Or are you hearing about your Family and your heritage And the things that formed you see those are two very different ways now is it possible to switch from one to the other I'm not saying it's impossible right but you certainly can't be in both simultaneously right? those are two different okay. so now what would be really stepping outside the Torah is somebody who can just be dismissive of Hashem someone who says Hashem is just not significant someone who Hashem is like oh, maybe yeah maybe no like it doesn't really the Torah is not the Torah is written Speaking to somebody who there's, there's me, there's Hashem. Hashem is, you know, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who took us out of Egypt, right? The one who, who and he's communicating with us. He's trying to speak to us, right? So if I want to understand the Torah, I have to be in the frame of mind of the one the Torah is speaking to. This is actually why many Jewish thinkers think that belief in God and acceptance of the Torah can't themselves be mitzvahs. Why? They're prerequisites for, for, for actually engaging with the mitzvahs, engaging with the Torah. So now, if a person is going around and sinning and they don't feel bad about it, or even possibly they're going around sinning and they feel bad about it, but, not enough, but it's not important enough for them to actually change, are they the kind of person that the Torah is talking to? 
The person who can be that dis- a person who's that dismissive consistently of God in their life is that the person the Torah is addressing? Is that the person Moshe is addressing? We speaking? And the answer is no. And we actually have this rule that this this the, the, um, um, that the wicked are considered to be dead. They're outside. They're not that they don't exist. Okay. And so when it says it's close to you, it's accessible to you, right? Say, what about all these people who when they contemplate it doesn't work? And the answer is because those people are standing outside the Torah, right? This happens a lot. You have a conversation with somebody and somebody else overhears it and they come and say, well, I don't understand what you said. I understand what you meant. And your answer is, well, it wasn't addressed to you. You don't have the context. You're not like, you have to be part of that conversation. You have to be in that space to understand what I meant. For it to resonate the right way, and so basically, it's like this: Yeah, it's it, uh, there are people that everything we learned will not work because they have made a decision to live outside the relationship with Hashem in a consistent manner. And the Torah, when it says "Kikarev," this is close to you, is not addressing them. It's not talking to people who choose to stand outside the relationship. Hashem says, "You choose to stand outside the relationship, then the relationship is close to you." I will not make my, I will not m- allow your normal processes to work to make, allow you to feel close to me, feel the connection to me in this kind of whenever it suits you. You want to be in the relationship, be in the relationship. You don't want to be in the relationship, don't be in the relationship. Um, now, I want to put this in a, in, 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 I want to put this in a positive light because this is a bit harsh, yes? Okay. Later on, the Altadeb is going to, um, he's going to talk a little bit about how to fix this problem because you couldn't fix this problem. I want to ask you the following question. Do you want to be in a relationship, just forget God for a second, a human relationship where that person is available to be close whenever you want, um, but there's no expectation that you live within the bounds of the relationship? Do you want to have that kind of relationship with somebody? Why not? It's convenient. Not real. Yeah. There's a kind of a sense that there's no integrity, that it's kind of cheap, right? There's a kind of a using of each other. So even that very fact that Hashem says, if you choose to live outside the relationship, then this avenue of closest to me is closed off to you until further notice. Even that, before we get to the fact that it can be fixed, the fact that that exists, we can understand that creates authenticity and integrity in the connection. Okay. Um, now, the reason why I'm saying that is because there's a, there's, we can think that punishment can come from a sense of... Um, punishment can come from many different things. You can punish somebody because you despise them. You're disgusted by them. You feel animosity towards them. You could punish someone for other reasons. When the Altar is saying he's punishing, that's such a choice of Hashem to interfere with the natural human process so that you can't develop the sense of closeness. But does the Altar explicitly say what's motivating Hashem? Is it his animosity towards the person? His disdain for the person? He doesn't say it here, but if you learn Chassidus, what comes out is it much more to do with Hashem's sense of integrity than anything else. And it's very important to understand going forward. Because if it really has to do with the sense of integrity, what if the person makes the decision, sincerely, truly, with all, willing to take all the costs involved to say, you know what, from now on I am going to try and live in the bounds of the relationship. 
if that punishment was based on loathing or disdain or hatred, do you just, you know, remove the, say, oh, so, okay, no need for the punishment anymore. No, because there's, there's all that negativity, right? But if the punishment is coming from the sense of, this is not a joke, this is a sincere thing, this has integrity, this has authenticity, and if you're not going to treat it seriously, then that's not available. Well, the minute the person is going to treat it seriously, the person is going to be, be, be genuine about it. Is there any reason to keep holding on the punishment? You, you, see, you see there's a huge difference. So if I conceive of punishment coming from a loathing or an animosity on Hashem's part, right? Then tshuva is not in and of itself sufficient to address the issue. Right? But if it's coming from Hashem's sense of integrity, Hashem's sense of authenticity, Hashem's sense that this is not cheap, this is not, this is not something that should be, this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is profound, and it should be treated as such. And I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to let you kind of abuse and objectify your connect with me whenever you get to feel connected whatever you want. That just doesn't know how it works. If that's really kind of the motivation, then as soon as the person is genuine about going back into living within the scope of the relationship, which we call tshuva, which is not easy, certainly not if you got used to living outside of it, then there's no reason for that punishment dissolves. There's no reason for that punishment to be there. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's important both in the sense of understanding that it itself is not a negative thing, it's a positive thing, and two, that frames how we then deal with addressing the problem. Okay. Yes? Um, how does this, um, how does this reconcile you can't sin your way out of Hashem's love, but you can sin your way out of Hashem making it that your awareness of His greatness will elicit your love of Him. That level of connection and interaction. So it depends what you're talking about. Is there any way you can get to the point where Hashem says, I don't care about you anymore? No. But is there a way Hashem saying, I'm not going to let you have that kind of intimate encounter with me? That then makes Judaism this rich and meaningful thing, but only when you're in the mood? No. That, so there's... Absolutely. But not actually being... Right, right. Now, there is a kind of love, which we learn at the in chapter 18, which you can't sin your way out of. Um, and also doesn't require that you have deep contemplation and also a bunch of other stuff. Okay. But that we'll learn later. Okay. Um, what this means actually is something very interesting. Um, and I should prepare you for this. Um, generally speaking, when a person be- is becoming more religious... They are living well within the bounds of the relationship. Again, does that mean they're necessarily complying with every single mitzvah? No. But that's a combination of lack of awareness, they just don't know. Lack of comfort, they're not really familiar, right? You're used to it and it takes time to adjust, right? Um, and there's also just the basic fact that like a person cannot change everything all at once, right? If you try to start keeping every single halacha perfect all the time, you, you, you start to... You, just, you become so tense that you have a breakdown, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a natural progression of doing more and doing more and doing more and human beings, you know, like in every area, right? You know, there's one step forward and another step forward and then a step back and then two steps forward and one step back and like, fine. But that's, they're living within the relationship. It's unstable, right? It's, it, it's, it, it, it's growth, but there's a real instability. Okay, fine. So if such a person were to like contemplate the greatness of Hashem, they probably would achieve some deeper sense of 
connection and commitment and devotion and a sense of importance of connecting Shem to the mitzvahs, right? And then that person gets more and more religious and they start living a religious lifestyle and then they discover X number of years later that when they try to contemplate the greatness of God, it doesn't work anymore. Why might that be? There can be many reasons, but one of the reasons is because now they're not living within the relationship anymore. And you say, how could that be? There should be more mitzvahs. And the answer is that a person could turn around after five or ten years and realize that all the mitzvahs they observe have basically become habit and communal norms. And any time where there isn't the habit and communal norm and they're not really interested in doing the mitzvah, sometimes with feelings of guilt, sometimes without feelings of guilt, they just live their life as they would and God will have to understand. So you could be very observant halachically and really living in some sense outside the relationship. And then the person comes to show or you know, goes into the room or whatever it is and really tries to reconnect to that place and finds that they can't. When you know, it was five or ten years earlier when they were still not necessarily keeping all the basic things in Shulchan Aruch. They weren't fully even Shomer Shabbos and they didn't have that problem. Now there could be many reasons for that but that's one of the things that can occur. Does that make that, that make sense? And, and that you realize that that happens also in, in human relationships. Human relationships, you achieve a certain level of plateauing, and then people don't necessarily continue to live in the balance of relationship. There, there's like the interactions, the patterns that have been set up. Okay, how do we solve this problem? Indeed, it is impossible for the wicked to begin to serve God. The emphasis of here, serving God, means this kind of connecting to Hashem through the mind, into the heart, into the mitzvahs. It doesn't mean the observance of mitzvahs, right? We're not talking about the person losing their free will. Without first repenting for their past in order to shatter the klippas which form a sundering curtain and an iron partition that interpose between them and their Father in Heaven. So what do they have to do? They have to do tshuva, and the tshuva breaks the barrier that allows them to again reconnect. How do they do that? By means of contriteness of the heart and bitterness of the soul over their sins, as explained in the Zohar and the verse, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. For through breaking one's heart, the spirit of uncleanliness of the Sitra Achar is broken. And then it gives you a bunch of sources from the um, Zohar and commentaries on the Zohar. Okay. So there is a verse which he quotes here. Um, just get the Hebrew. The verse says that the sacrifices of God is a is a broken spirit um, and a broken heart. Okay, and the idea being is that the breaking of the heart breaks the spirit. So there's really two things here. You're breaking that. You're breaking. You want to, you, you know, The goal is you want to break the spirit, which talks like what that is. How do you break the spirit? By having a broken heart. What's the spirit? That's the spirit of impurity. In other words, the spirit here represents the barrier that's put up between a person and Hashem. You want to break that barrier so that the contemplation can actually move you emotionally. How do you break that evil spirit? You break that evil spirit by having a broken heart. Now, um,
This is also an idea that the Altar speaks about at great length in other places. Okay. And so I'm not going to do it justice now. I want to just say a few things. Number one, um, breaking your heart um, is like chemotherapy. What is chemotherapy as a concept? Like, how does it, what is it, what is, how does it happen in chemotherapy? It attacks all of your, like, cells, your, right. what is it, white cells, so that then it can actually target what's actually... Right. You try to kill, the, you're trying to kill, right, things in the body so that you can then get rid of the real disease, right? The, and the trick is that you hopefully kill the body slower than you're getting get access to the disease to kill the disease, and then you stop and the person recovers. That's the theory. Right? Now, it doesn't always work that way. Right? You could actually, the treatment could kill the person, right? A broken heart, what the trick is, you want to break, a breaking your heart has two things. It has two effects. One, it destroys your joy and passion for life in general and connection to Hashem in particular. And two, it breaks the spirit of the klipa, the spirit of the, of the, that's the barrier between you and Hashem. It does both. That's the honest truth. So, if you go around trying to break your heart without being very judicious about how you do it, you might end up making the problem far worse than making it better, right? Make sense? So there is guidance. Dr. mentions it in Tanya in the end of chapter 26 a little bit. And there's a whole section, the third section on deals with it more at length. Okay? I'm going to mention just briefly some of the things that it says in... Um, chapter 26, which is that breaking one's heart has to be done intentionally in a settled and mature state of mind, not in a reactionary, kind of spontaneous kind of way. Now, there's more to it, but just of that. In other words, a person has to be like really mature and say, I need to go through this kind of a process and then carefully and deliberately go through that process. If they don't go approach it that way, then guaranteed they're going to destroy their zest and passion for life and service of Hashem far quicker than they're going to get rid of the spirit of impurity that's blocking their ability to have this kind of sense of Hashem. Okay. Um, in other words, that once a person is living outside the relationship, they really need they really need to be bothered by the fact they're outside the relationship in order to make the hard changes to go in, and then Hashem removes the barrier as well. Right? But you could just as easily just fall into kind of despair and self-loathing. And that doesn't bring you back into any relationship. Okay? So that's all I'm going to say on the matter. But Dr. was saying is that, yeah, if a person finds themselves really living outside the relationship, so this kind of contemplation just doesn't work. Not because they don't know how to contemplate. Not because they're not, you're good at it. But because Hashem has created that barrier as, as a punishment, as a feedback for, for, for choosing to live outside. Then you, have to, you, have to, you have to face that. And there's no workaround to that. The other thing that I'm going to say is, um, and different people will say different this in different ways, so I'm going to say it as generally as possible. The Rebbe um, clearly de-emphasized this idea. Now, there are people tell you that the Rebbe said that this idea is no longer pertinent. There are people who say that's not true. I don't want to wait into that right now. I want to just say what's kind of universal good is that the, the Rebbe's sense is that our main issue is not valuing um, our connection to Hashem and 
appreciating um, the ability to serve Hashem, what that means, rather than having an actual barrier. So all things being equal, okay, and maybe even not even being equal, should one person assume that the problem is that they're outside the relationship and that's why things aren't working? Now, some people say that take the Rebbe in a very literal sense that this idea is no longer applicable at all, um, and they have their reasons for saying that, and some people say that, that that's taking it a little too extreme, that this is still relevant and pertinent, but in some but, but it's important to, as, as certainly as a general, that, that when a person is not successful in, in cultivating that kind of closeness with Hashem, that certainly we should not assume that this is the problem. Okay, that should definitely be, that definitely rises from what the Rebbe says. Okay. Um, this is the category of what's called the lower tshuva, whereby the lower hay is raised up from its fall into the forces of evil, which is the mystery of the Shekhin in exile, as a rabbi's a blessed memory state, when the Israelites were exiled to Edom, the Shekhinah went with them. Okay? So the idea is, is that God goes into exile along with us, um, and when we do tshuva, we're returning the godliness back to its proper place. That is to say, when a person practices the acts of Edom, Edom is the descendants of Asa representing the evil, he degrades and brings down the divine spark which vitalizes his nefesh, ruach, neshama, as parts of the soul that are clothed within him, in the animal soul of the klipa, which is left part of the heart, which reigns over him as long as it remains remains wicked, dominating his small city, while the nefesh, ruach, neshama, are forced into exile under it. Okay, now, the idea of exile doesn't mean you're just not where you belong, but um, there's, there's, there's actual, um, sometimes, servitude associated with that. So the idea is that the soul actually gets dragged into participating in the ungodly life, but when his heart breaks within him, the spirit of uncleanness and the sitrach is broken, the force of evil is dispersed, and the Shekhinah, which is what enlivens the soul, rises and falls and remains upright, is explained elsewhere. This is explained at length, 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 over several chapters in the third section of Tiny, the letter of Tshuva, starting from chapter 4 until I don't remember, but 7, I think, chapter 7, something like that. Maybe 8. Okay? Um, so, I don't really think we can develop it here. The big takeaway... <laughs> the big takeaway from all of this is... That the approach that we have seen, it's effective for most of the people, most of the time, provided that you are living within the relationship of Hashem, right? Which doesn't necessarily mean that you are never do a sin, but certainly you're not consistently disregarding Hashem's will. Okay? Chapter 18, we're going to start an approach which works for all of the people, all of the time. 